The Creek Church is a community of believers located in Fort Worth, Texas. If you would like more information about the Creek Church, please be sure to visit our website at thecreekfw.com. Good morning. See you guys today. Um, if it's your first time with us today, my name is Trinity. I'm the family pastor here. Um, our senior pastor, Pastor Matt, is actually not with us today. He and his wife, Heather, um, for those of you who have seen the Facebook post, but for those who haven't, they're actually in Rwanda today. Um, they've gone up there over the course of the next couple of weeks and able to meet with a church plant that we've recently planted over there. Then the name of this church is Love Back Church, and Pastor Matt's went over there specifically to meet with the pastor there, to get to know the pastor there, to pour into them and be in prayer for them, that uh, they really be the light, uh, light for that pastor, that they're able to speak to them, they're able to connect with them, be hope for the people. But one of the coolest things about this church plant, I don't know if you guys have heard of programs where you can sponsor a child. Well, the cool thing about this is you can also do the same thing. You can sponsor a child that is within this Rwanda church. And the cool thing is, if you ever go on a missions trip with the church to Rwanda, you're going to be able to meet that child that you sponsored. So it's such a cool opportunity. And um, today we're going to be in Ruth chapter 3, if you want to go ahead and turn there. I do want to say this. We have Easter services that are quickly approaching upon us. And because of that, because of how crazy that week is, there's going to be four services, one Saturday, three Sunday. If, if you have the availability, we could certainly use some help in serving. Out on the back table in here, If uh, when you go to the lobby, there's a black table close to the doors. There's a sign-up sheet to be able to sign up to volunteer to help us with that. Your help would be much appreciated. But Ruth chapter 3. Last week, Pastor Matt went through Ruth chapter 3, um, just through the first five verses of it. And um, what we saw throughout those first five verses was Naomi given certain steps for Ruth to take. Because Ruth, she's about to go to the threshing floor where we're going to find Boaz today. And the way Pastor Matt addressed that message to us last week was one where it was a bride adorning herself for, a, for her wedding date. So let's get in there and let's look at this. And before, honestly, before I get into verses 6 and 7, I want to uh, highlight the first verse Chapter 3, verse 1, because I feel as though there's something there that somebody needs to hear today. The first verse in chapter 3 says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, to Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? The reason I wanted to point that out this morning is because if you're familiar with the first chapter, in verse 9, when Orpah and Ruth declare that they want to go back to Bethlehem with Naomi... What is it that she says to him? She essentially prays a prayer over him. She says, I pray that the Lord deal kindly with you. But the second thing she prayed for was, and that you may find rest. And now we see here in chapter 3, verse 1, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you? Because we uncover a biblical truth in that, that a lot of times when God is going to answer a prayer for us. When we seek him, when we ask him for something, a lot of times he opens up the opportunity for us to be able to move, for us to be able to go and to seek that thing. It's, it's, so it's not so much in those moments of us sitting back passively waiting for God to do something. It's that moment where divine action 
and also human action go hand in hand and in tandem. So if you find yourself in a place this morning where there's something that you've prayed for and you're not quite sure if God's given it to you, maybe it's time this morning to step out in faith and to begin to pursue that thing knowing that he has given it to you. So if that was for you this morning, cool. We're gonna move on. Verse six. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and when his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. We're gonna stop there for a minute because it's important to understand what's going on at the time of Israel right now. The reason that there's this festive celebration and this party-type atmosphere where he's hanging with his boys is because this is actually a feast day that's happening in Israel at this time. In fact, the book of Ruth is actually read to Jews during the Feast of Pentecost because this part of the story, it's taking place at the Feast of Pentecost. Now, if you know your Old Testament kind of well, you know that there's actually seven annual feast days that Israel, that they must keep. And we've talked about this a few weeks ago, the last time I taught, where one of the most awesome things about the Bible is when you start seeing the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit throughout it, when you start seeing a picture of Christ in it. We talked about the road to Emmaus and how Jesus, beginning at Genesis all the way to Malachi, told of how the scriptures pointed to him. Even in Hebrews, it says that the volume of the book is written of you. So finding those places where Jesus is in the Old Testament is so awesome. And uh, if you remember that verse from Colossians, where Paul's talking to the Colossian church, and he says, um, let no one judge you, therefore, in eating or drinking or in festivals or new moons and Sabbaths, for these were a shadow, but the fullness is in Christ. They're a shadow of Jesus Christ. They're a shadow of things to come. And what was he speaking of? He was speaking of these feast days. Feast day, that word, feast, in Hebrew is moedim, and it's translated as the appointed times. In other words, these are specific dates in which God does something incredibly significant in human affairs when he steps down and really moves, and we see an incredible picture of this. Pentecost is happening now. That's one of the feast days, but I want to share with you some of the other feast days as well, just to give you an appreciation for how they point to Jesus Christ, because it's amazing. There's three in the spring, and there's also three feast days in the fall. The three in the spring, they're the feast uh, of Passover, of unleavened bread, and also the feast of first fruits. So how do those point to Jesus? Each one of those three were fulfilled by Jesus in his first coming. And let me, let me give you an example of that. Passover. On Nisan the 14th, Nisan is one of the Hebrew calendar months. On Nisan the 14th, it's the night before Passover. Now, Passover in, in Egypt was when the Israelites, they were in slavery to Egypt, and God is gonna deliver them out. So the last thing that he does is sends the spirit of death over them, the angel of death, and it kills the firstborn. But in order that the firstborns of Israel don't die, what does he do? He says, I want you to sacrifice a lamb, and I want you to take the blood, put it on the doorposts of your home, that the angel of death would pass over. So you roll it forward to the New Testament days, and what happens? On Nisan the 14th, the day before Passover, the high priest is raising up the knife to sacrifice the lambs for Israel, 
At the same time, Jesus is put, being put on the cross, becoming our sacrificial lamb. The Bible tells us that he was the lamb slain from the foundations of time. In other words, God knew exactly when that was going to happen because he's outside of time. He's able to see the beginning from the end. So he commemorated that day well in advance. So they celebrate the shedding of the blood of this lamb for Passover when Jesus, our sacrificial lamb, came. Absolutely amazing. So he sacrificed on the 14th. The 15th is the day of Pentecost, or I'm sorry, the day of Passover. And then finally, the next morning, what happens? The Feast of First Fruits. Now, the Feast of First Fruits is exceedingly significant. What would happen in the Feast of First Fruits is they would take the first of the grain, the first of the harvest that was coming, and they would wave it before the Lord to signify not only was the first fruits holy, but also that which would come after the rest of the harvest was going to be holy as well. Now, when Paul is talking about this to the Corinthian church, he says, Jesus became the first fruits of those who were sleeping. In other words, the resurrection, and it's so cool because the resurrection takes place in three phases as well just as the harvest did. The first was the first fruits. The second was the general harvest where most of the fruit of the land came up. And the last one was the gleanings. We talked a little bit about that earlier in Ruth. But the resurrection happens in three phases as well. Jesus being the first fruits of that resurrection. The general harvest, we know it as the rapture of the church when the dead in Christ rise and we who are alive and remain are caught up together with them in the air. And finally, the gleanings that final piece of the harvest comes at the end of the seven-year tribulation when the tribulation saints that were martyred get risen again. But we see Jesus in the first fruits that he fulfills that on the exact day that they would be holding up the offering before God that Jesus rose as our first fruits offering. Amazing. And what's the last one of the three in the spring? The Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this one's cool as well. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. Leaven was always a type of sin within the Bible. So Jesus, when he's talking about the Pharisees, he says, you see the outside of the cup, it's all clean, it looks good, but the inside of the cup is dirty. He, he relates it to a tomb as well. He says, they're like a whitewashed tomb. The, the, white, the outside is white and clean, but the inside's full of dead men's bones. And he goes on to say, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of the sin that they actually have. Paul makes a mention of the same thing of unleavened bread in 1 Corinthians 5 when he's talking about the, the church and that we should be moving to a place of being unleavened where there's no sin within us. He says, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, cleanse out the old leaven or the sin that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He says, for we really are unleavened. In other words, the sin that we once had has been placed on Christ and we are now an unleavened lump as well. So when you look at the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the cool thing about it, because Israel had to get out of Egypt quickly when the Passover came, they didn't have time for yeast or leaven to be within the bread. That's what causes it to rise. God's like, you, you don't have time for that. Listen, you need to cook the bread, and you need to get out of Dodge. So they cook these unleavened bread, which ends up turning out to look like a cracker. A cracker is unleavened bread for us. So when you cook unleavened bread, you have to roast it on a fire over grates. And when you do, you have to uh, put holes within it so that it cooks evenly. And when that happens, um, the holes, the, the color remains kind of beige, but the other rolls, it produces stripes on the back. 
And you obviously, you see the picture of Jesus Christ in that, in that he was pierced for our transgressions. By his stripes, we've been healed. The first three feast days are absolutely amazing. If you get further into the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you're going to find out there were actually three pieces of this bread. One got broken, wrapped in linen cloth, and hid. Jesus, as he's broken for us, he's wrapped in linen cloth, placed in the tomb. It's amazing the more and more you get into it. I don't have time to really dive into it fully, but it's so cool. But you move 50 days past Penta, 50 days past Passover, and you arrive at Pentecost. And I'll talk about the significance of Pentecost in just a second. But then there's three final feast days that happen in the fall. The, uh, I think it's the uh, Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and also the, uh, what's the last one? Um, tabernacles. Thank you. And most scholars believe, and I agree with them, that these last three feast days are going to be literally fulfilled by Jesus at his second coming. Now, what are significant events that still remain? The rapture of the church. The return of Jesus physically to this earth at the end of the seven-year tribulation. The arrival into the millennial kingdom when God comes with us. And a lot of people believe that the feast of trumpets would be that time of the rapture. Is that true? We, we don't know. We're not there yet. In fact, nobody knows that day or that hour. But it makes sense because Paul says, at the last trumpet, the dead in Christ shall rise. And we know that that day is supposed to come like a thief in the night. But Paul, even discussing that, said, we know that this day will come like a thief in the night to those who are in darkness. But you, brethren, aren't in the darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. You're sons of the light, sons of the day. And it goes along with Jesus, what he said, when he gave all these signs, these eight signs of what's going to happen at his second coming, and he says, when you see these things begin to happen, you know the time draws near. So there should be some things about it we perceive, but we don't know exactly. The day of atonement, many believe, is going to be the day that Jesus touches down on the Mount of Olives and Israel looks upon who, him and whom they've pierced. A lot of people believe that the day of tabernacles is actually going to be the day that the millennial reign starts when Jesus Christ is tabernacling with men and he's here among us. Will that be how it plays out? I have no idea. But these feast days are the appointed times of God where significant events happen. So what's the first ones represent the coming of Christ, his sacrificial death and atonement, huge events. 50 days later is Pentecost. And what is Pentecost? This is what we're, celebra- this is what we're discussing today in the text. Pentecost is the birthday of the church of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 2, the disciples find themselves in the upper room. We read of them there. And the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Why are they in the upper room? They're celebrating Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes and changes these uneducated men that a lot of times through their time with Jesus were fearful into these powerhouses that absolutely rocked the then known world and turns the world upside down or right side up depending on how you look at it. But Pentecost was the day that the church became the bride of Jesus Christ. And it's the day that we're gonna be reading about here where Ruth proposes to Boaz. This book is actually read to Jews during the time of Pentecost for that very reason. So let's jump in. Verse six and seven that we had just read says that she went down to the threshing floor where Boaz was. So the question is, why is he at the threshing floor? What's that all about? Well, what you have to understand about Pentecost is that the threshing floor was located typically on a high hill. And the men of Israel, they would take 
they would take turns going up to the threshing floor in order to beat out their stalks of uh, barley so that the grain would fall to the floor, or they would have an ox trample it. But once the evening breeze began to blow, they would start winnowing their barley. They would throw it up in the air. The chaff would be blown away, and the grain would stay. And typically, because it was nighttime, they would sleep with their grain so that it wasn't stolen that night. And that's exactly why Naomi knew where Boaz would be. And that's where we arrive in the story. But imagine, imagine Ruth for a second. She's just been told by Naomi, hey, I want you to go down there. I want you to wash. I want you to anoint yourself. I want you to put some new clothes on. And I want you to go to the feet of Boaz. And I want you to ask him to be your redeemer. Can you imagine the fear that she must have had with something like that? She had to have total faith in what Naomi said and faith in Boaz that he was going to accept her. When we come to the feet of our kinsman redeemer, our Goel, we have to come by faith as well. Ephesians 2.8 says it's for grace that you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It's the gift of God, lest any man should boast. Let's continue on and see what happens. Verse 8. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, hey, baby. Oh, he said... <laughs> He said, who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed to the Lord, my daughter. You've made this last kindness greater than your first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. Make no mistake what she's doing at this moment. She's coming to Boaz at his feet and proposing marriage. Now, typically, there was a process that this happened by in which someone would go to their goel, their kinsman redeemer, and ask to be redeemed by them. It was typically a very public affair. In other words, the woman would come up and essentially demand it. Why? Because by the law, she had the right to be redeemed. And if the guy chose not to redeem her, then he was spat upon and he would have to take one of his shoes off and walk around Israel for a certain amount of time in order to face public disgrace for not doing that. Notice what Ruth is doing here, though. She's coming to him at a place of quietness. She's coming to him in a place away from the public eye. He has the opportunity to deny becoming her redeemer, yet not face public shame. This is an incredibly meek and humble act that she's doing. And she asks him, now spread the mantle of your garment over me. Spread your wings over me. The, the Hebrew there is spread your, the hem of your garment over me. You have to know that the hem of the garment in Israel was the place of power or the place of authority. Like today, we may have stripes on an arm that denote our authority or, or maybe an insignia on our chest that shows what our power of authority is. But back then, it was the hem of the garment. That's why it makes it so significant when David goes to Saul and he cuts the hem of his garment off. He was taking his authority. You roll over to the New Testament. You find the woman with the issue of blood. What does she do? She seeks just to touch the hem of his garment. And when she does, what does the Bible say? Jesus says, I perceive that powers went out from me. And she's healed. So he's, she's asking him when she says, spread your mantle over me, spread your, the hem of your garment over me, bring me under your authority, bring me under your power. This was an act of marriage. This was an act of saying, become my Goel. She's asking to become one with her kinsman redeemer. 
we must confess our desire to become one with the Redeemer as well. When we understand salvation, when we understand what it is once we come to Jesus by faith, what it is that we're actually doing, what we find out is it's an act of marriage that's happening. It's a covenant that's happening, one in which we leave one thing and we cleave to another. It, it would be like, um, imagine if you were in, in the marriage process and the, the pastor's telling you all the things to say, you know, yes, and richer or poorer, to death do us part, I do, I do, yes, good. Okay, Whew, man, well, that was fun. Um, I'm going back to mom's house, though, man. There's some cool microwavable burritos over there. X-Files is coming on tonight. That was cool. I had a good time. No, it's an understanding that you've become one with this person, and a new life is coming. In other words, the old has passed away, and behold, all things become new. And uh, Paul, when he's talking about husbands, how we ought to treat our wives in, in the reverse, in Ephesians 5, he says, wives, be submissive to your husband in all things. And husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. He says, I speak of a mystery, but I speak of that concerning Christ and the church. This covenant that we've moved into with God is a covenant where we've become one with him. And that's what happens when the Holy Spirit comes in, baptizing us into the body of Christ that we become one with him. And we need to understand that moving forward with the Lord. But notice what he also said. He said, this last act that you've done is greater than the first one that you've done. What was the first thing she did? She left her home and she came to Israel to be under the protection of God. Now she's asking to be under the protection of her kinsman redeemer. In other words, to be brought not just into the location of Israel, but this brings her into the covenantal blessings of Israel. He said, this thing you've done is even greater. You're being grafted in. It's such a cool picture. Such a cool picture. But he said, what you could have done is you could have went after somebody who's younger and somebody who's much more attractive than these old bones. Because at this point, he's an older dude. But isn't that just like when we come to the Lord? There's so much that the enemy throws up, whether it's the, the flesh of the eye or the, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, these different things that uh, the enemy says, no, you desire those things. You desire power. You desire money. You desire all these different people. In that, you'll find life. But no, she didn't believe any of that. She didn't go after that. She wanted more to be brought into the commonwealth of Israel. The same way with us. We have to dash the idols in our life. We have to get rid of those different areas that we can go to, those different areas that we think are going to bring us life. We must choose the Redeemer over any substitute that comes our way. We have to choose him. Let's move on. Verse 11. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For my fellow townsmen's Know that you're a worthy woman. That word worthy there, by the way, it's the same word that's used to talk about the Proverbs 31 woman, that she's worthy. Same word. He's saying, I see you as that Proverbs 31 woman. You're a worthy woman, verse 12. And now it, it's true. It's true. I am a redeemer, he says. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. And you hear the music, dun, 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 dun. So I don't know what the, what the issue is here. I don't know if maybe he's the nephew of Elimelech. And yet there's a brother that's still alive, so he's the closer relative. He has the right of first refusal. I, I don't know exactly. 
The text doesn't reveal that to us, but we know there's somebody closer, and he has to go address that person first. He says in verse 13, remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, he invokes the name of Yahweh here, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So there's this fear that she must have had going there to his feet. How is this going to turn out? What's he going to say? Have I done all this for nothing? Am I going to go back home empty-handed? And what she finds out is that the kinsman redeemer accepts her. In the Christian faith, what we find out in Ephesians 1 verse 6, it says you're accepted in the beloved. Our kinsman redeemer accepts us as well. And not only that, what else did he say to to Ruth? He says, you're a worthy woman. So he sees her as worthy. How many times that people go to come to Christ and they think of, man, if there is a holy, just, and righteous God, there's no way he'll accept me. Look at what I've done. Look at the things I've did. Look at the things that were done upon me. I'm dirty. I'm filthy. But the Savior sees you as worthy, so much so he sees you as valuable. Why do I say that? Because look what it cost him. It costs Boaz here to redeem Ruth. We'll find that out later. But it costs Jesus Christ his life to redeem you. You see, that's how he looks at each one of us. In Hebrews 12, 2, it says, keep your eyes fixed upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He endured incredible torture. So what was the joy that was set before him? It was you. It was me. It was this world. He sees us as so valuable that he stepped into time and became a substitutionary death for us and faced absolute torture for us. But he also said to her, fear not. He calms her fears and he gives her peace and he gives her rest. The very thing that Naomi had prayed for in chapter one before she ever came to Israel He is now desiring to give to her, to give her peace, to calm her fear, and to give her rest. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are heavy, who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you what? I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest for your souls. But so many people don't come to Christ because of fear. They see, man, God must be this tough taskmaster. He he must just be wanting to heap judgment and condemnation over me. I know I've done wrong. I I know there's a lot to clean up here. Man, I'm going to come to him because I'm fearful of him. I'm fearful of torment. I'm fearful of of hell. In 1 John 4, 18, it says this, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with torment or punishment. And he who fears has not yet been perfected in love. You see, when we become one with Christ and the Holy Spirit comes within us, it says in uh, Romans 5, 5, it says that he pours the love of God into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. He completely changes us. And if you're still, still fearful of a God, if you're still looking at him as some sort of bad taskmaster, 
If you haven't yet been perfected in love, allow God to pour that into you by the Holy Spirit. Believe that he sees you as worthy and valuable and so much so that he would go to his own death for you. That's the true heart of God. That's a true picture of what our God, our kinsman redeemer, our Goel, it's a true picture of what he's like. Let's finish up, verse 14. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. He's not saying that because he's trying to deceitfully make sure people didn't see it. He just wants to be the first one to be able to tell the nearer kinsman, hey, there's this Ruth gal. She's asking to be redeemed. You have first right of refusal. So he says, "Don't don't let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter, or what happened? What's the gossip? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Now, whatever he was trying to communicate through these six measures of barley, which sound odd to us, apparently Naomi gets it completely. She understands, because she goes on to say, She replied, wait, my daughter, until you've learned how this matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. I believe that everything in scripture, everything, is there by deliberate design by the Holy Spirit. I believe there's something that can be communicated to us through every portion of scripture. Jesus said about the scriptures, not one jot or one tittle will pass from the law until all be fulfilled. A jot and a tittle in the Hebrew is like the crossing of the T or the dotting of an I. He says it'll all be fulfilled. So what, what is this? What is it that communicates to Naomi, this Jewish lady, so well about this six and also a time of rest? I think it's a picture of the creation week. It says for God created the world in six days, and on the seventh, he rested. Those six days showed all the work that he had done for this universe, for this plane, this existence we live in. Well, the seventh day, God rested. I believe that these six represent all the works of Boaz's hands that he's giving. He's giving everything. He's created everything just for her. But notice the difference in the story. On the seventh day, God rested. What happens in this story after the six are given? It says he will not rest. What's the difference here? See, I think when we find things like this, the more and more we dig and the more and more we try to uncover, the clearer a picture we get of Jesus Christ. This is what I think might be going on here. There's a story in John chapter five. Jesus is walking by the the pool of Bethesda. And the story goes that an angel would come and he would stir the waters of Bethesda. And once that happened, the the people would jump in and they would find healing. Well, Jesus comes along to this paralytic man. And he's sitting there and the waters are stirred and there's nobody there to get him in the water. And Jesus says to him, do you want to be healed? And I, I can only assume the narrative went something like this of, well, you know, I'm just laying here by the water. Nobody can. Yes, I want to be healed. That's why I'm here. So Jesus says, pick up your mat and walk. You've been healed. The interesting thing is, when when we read further in the story, 
Jesus healed him on the Sabbath day. The Pharisees had a real problem with that. That you, you can't do that. You can't heal on the Sabbath. And what is Jesus' response in verse 17 to him? My father has been working up to this point, and I shall continue also. You see, God in six days created everything, and he stopped from his creative work. The fall happens, and what's he been doing since? He's been working the plan of salvation. And he can say, just as Boaz said at the end here, I will not rest until this matter is settled. And Jesus says, I'm doing the exact same thing. Now today we're talking about the appointed times. The appointed times and how the pictures of Pentecost and all these other dates point to Jesus Christ. Well, there's two other days of appointment that I want to mention. The first one comes in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. It says, it's appointed, appointed time, it's appointed man wants to die, and then the judgment. Every person who is born on this planet, with the exception of Enoch and Elijah, because somebody will tell me that later, every person born on this earth will find at some point their appointment unto death. We don't know when that day is. We don't know if it's today we don't know if it's tomorrow. We don't know if it's a week from Saturday. We don't know when that day comes. Only God knows. We're not promised tomorrow. The rapture could happen tomorrow. We have no idea. We're supposed to live expectantly at all times. But there is a day of appointment unto all men in which we face death. But there's also another appointment date. I want to read in Acts chapter 13, verse 47 and 48, just really briefly. This, picture, this story here is about Paul and Barnabas when he goes to the Jewish people and he's telling them the plan and the path of salvation and how Christ is the Passover lamb and all that we've talked about. And he says, but you've rejected it. And then in verse uh, 47, he says, for so the Lord had commanded us saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Notice the next verse. It says, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. God is outside of time. He knows everybody that will ever come to faith in him. And for those who will, who will bend their knee and come to Christ here, there is an appointed time as well for that. The question I have for you this morning is today your appointed time. Is today the day that Christ has been working on your behalf? The Holy Spirit has not stopped working until the matter is solved. He's brought people into your life. He's began communicating the need for himself and how all those other roads that have been traveled down will end in despair every time. And he's got you here this morning today for a message that says you have to come to the feet of this Redeemer by faith. You can't choose any other substitute over him. And this transaction that happens is a covenant of marriage that happens upon you in order to lead you into new life. Is God calling you to the threshing floor tonight? Is today the appointed day of your salvation? One of the most amazing things about the heart of God is I can tell you countless times when somebody is about to walk through the most difficult portion of their life, they're about to go through the darkest days imaginable, 
and God woos them to himself right before that happens. Countless stories of people coming to church saying, yeah, I just feel like I need to get back into this thing. And then instantly, a week later, they're thrust into the hardest thing they've ever had to walk through in life. Why? Not because God wasn't there for them, because he showed up. And he said, you can't do this without me. It's a beautiful act of mercy that he does that. But, we, but sometimes the enemy likes to make us blame God and say, well, God, I came to you and this happened. No, he knew it was happening and he drew you to himself. And I've seen times when also that men, because they do terrible acts to other people, and because sometimes people die an untimely death, that God will draw those people to him before it happens, and they come to faith in Christ right before that day happens. We say, Lord, why didn't you save them? He did save them. He saved them unto eternal life. God is here today, and he desires you to know this about yourself. I don't care what you've done in the past. I don't care how ugly it is. I don't care how unvaluable you think you are, that you are worthy in the eyes of our Savior. When Jesus comes over the Palm Sunday, stares down into the valley of Judea, in the hills of Judea, he sees Jerusalem in the distance. He looks down knowing what he's about to face, knowing the death he's going to die, knowing that he's about to stare death in the face, torture in the face, hell in the face. And what does he do? He sets his face like flint and he goes. He dies for us. He sacrifices his life in such a way, not that we might go back to these idols, but that we may pursue him, become one with him, and life change happens. Because why? The old things, they pass away. Behold, all things become new in Jesus Christ. And if he's called you here today, maybe today is the appointed day of your salvation. Don't miss the opportunity this morning to pray with somebody up here on the prayer team. God won't rest until this matter be completed. And he moved forward into Jerusalem to complete it. Will you move forward today and pray with somebody about it? Today, we're going to be celebrating the night of presence as well. The night of presence is going to be a great time of worship tonight, but it's also going to be a time of baptism. Let's take care of both of them today. Let's get you saved, and let's take that first act of obedience of baptism. If you've never been baptized... Let's do it tonight. Come find me after service. Come talk to somebody here. Come talk to somebody in the Welcome Center. Tell them I want to be baptized tonight. Let's get rolling on this together. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your undying love for us. And Father, for that person that came in today and that they just feel unworthy, God. They feel like there's no way a holy and a righteous God would ever love them. God, I pray in Jesus' name that you testify to their heart. You're so valuable that it cost me my life. Lord, the creation, the world, all this, all that we see, it cost you six days, I've heard it said recently. What did, what did uh, salvation cost you? It cost you your son. And Lord, that's the value that you place on every soul and every heart that's in here today. And I pray that the gospel penetrate through the darkness, through the hardness of heart, through all the reasons why we might come and bend our knee to you to see the truth that God, you've created us. You've created us special. You've created us for a purpose. And it's the glory of you to reveal that in our lives that you've created us to do something great, God. And I pray that first step of realizing that, Lord, you've called us, first of all, to yourself. 
to be saved, to be set free, that that happens here today for someone. Lord, we believe you've given us a vision of 100 souls at the Creek Church in 2016. I pray that the first fruits of that begins here this morning. Spirit of God, minister to the people. Show them, Lord, that they're sinners. They've fallen short in their desperate need for your substitutionary death as our Passover lamb. And Lord, their desperate need for you to be their Goel, their kinsman redeemer. And through that faith that we have, that you've done it all, God, that we enter into a covenant with you and new life. Father, if there's anyone else here that also needs to come to the threshing floor tonight and just simply trample something under their feet that is caught back up with them. Lord, as we move forward, sometimes the enemy gets us back into the old habits. And Father, I pray within our hearts this morning that that grain is trampled. It's thrown into the air and you carry the chaff of our hearts away and your true grain remains. God, minister to your people today through the Holy Spirit. Remind them your unending love. Father, we lift up our hearts to you and we simply thank you for all that you've done to set us free. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray to you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Creek Church Podcast. If you would like more information about us, please visit our website at thecreekfw.com. Thank you.